0: Father, we praise you this morning for making us your chosen, precious children, O Lord, precious in your sight. You bled for us on the cross, O Lord, and we are ever grateful and we gather in your name, delighted to hear from your continuing word as it it unfolds even in our hearts this morning, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to turn to the book of Romans again this morning, Romans chapter 8. So turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning. We'll be be discussing the same verse that we discussed last week with a couple of more tacked on. So we'll go to Romans 8, 28, where Paul writes to the Roman church, and we know that all things work together for good to those who Who love God, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called... And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. O oh, Father, let us glorify you this morning as we make our attempts with the assistance of your Holy Spirit to edify your people in these great eternal truths. Amen. I would like you to consider something this morning as we, as we approach a verse like this or a passage like this. You have to see at the outset, this is one of the most sublime, most crucial, important statements in all of the scripture. It is a summary of the whole of God's word, that God works all things according to his purpose. So I'd like to approach this the way Moses approached the bush. So everybody, take off your sandals at this time. But really, what you're doing is you're preparing yourself to come before something bright and shimmering with divine holiness and celestial beauty. This is an awesome passage of Scripture. It's something that ought to be engraved in your heart. And I hope after this series, if it's not now, it will be then. This is like the holy mountain of God where God is there. It's almost too holy to come unshriven before it. If anyone, even an animal, touched the mountain, they were zapped out of existence by the holy presence of the Almighty. This is such a place. This is such an aspect of the oracles of God that we dare not approach it lightly or certainly not lightheartedly. All things, the apostle says. He says, and we know that all things. The apostle is telling us what we know. And what he knows we know because he just read eight chapters of his letter to us. Eight rich doctrinal statements. So we know something is true by this point. And by this point he sums it up. And I submit to you today, this is a summary of the whole of the scriptures. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And even though we're still here, I'm going to try to break a little new ground with you this morning. Because it is such an unbelievably encouraging statement. We're all going through different things. We're all praying for all these things that we're suffering for afflictions of our friends, for our own afflictions. And yet somehow, in the purpose of God, in the sovereign mind of our Creator... That thing you're suffering is for your benefit and will accrue to your good in the end. All things means all things. And I know I labored over that last week. But here I am again. So we're not ready to depart from this astounding statement comprised in a single verse. What the statement tells us is what the whole of the Bible has done from Genesis to Revelation. It's God unfolding his plan that he is indeed working all things for the good of those who love him. For those who don't love him, there's another message, which we will also speak of. And I'll speak of it before that first paragraph in your notes has been preached. It's the message of the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that God is always working. Now, don't picture him working because he's not working. The tapestry is woven. Your outcome is already completed. In fact, he says it, and I'll get to it in that wonderful aorist tense. Your glorification is already accomplished in the heart and mind of God. God's not working. He conceived the whole thing before he started it. Before the foundation of the world. And so our verse says explicitly what the rest of Scripture tells us in so many implicit ways. And that is, come what may, the purpose of God will be fulfilled. Do not doubt it. And if you're not reading your Bible, then start. And I know most of us are not readers. Believe me, I know that. We're not even in a reading age. It's kind of a lost art. But I'm telling you, it will enrich you to go back and see the works of God if you want to start somewhere, I'll tell you where to start. Go to the book of Acts and read the, the sermon of Stephen that got him killed. And you'll have a, a primer of everything that was done by God for his people in all of the scriptures. So go there and start with that. All things will be done according to his purpose to those who love him. All things will work together for good to those who love him according to his purpose. To those who stand aloof, to those who do not come near, to those who have failed or refuse to love him, all things will work together toward their pre-appointed ends According to his purpose. The proverb says it succinctly where we read. The Lord made all things for himself. Even the wicked for the day of doom. Election is the beautiful side of sovereignty. And reprobation is the difficult side for us. That God chose some people to go the other way. That blows our minds. I think especially the American mind. We are so, we think liberty is fairness. You know, if we could get past that, we'd be a better nation. Liberty is not fairness. Liberty is fairness of opportunity to fail. (laughs) The Lord made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of doom. In the beginning, God created a lustrous paradise. He placed within it the apple of his eye, Adam. The special object of his affection. I wonder if God ever loved anyone the way he loved Adam. In our race, I'm talking about. Every desirable desirable thing was at Adam's disposal. It was within his reach of his hand. There was but one restriction. And that was that the purpose of God for eternity would be disclosed to the man in God's own time. The knowledge of good and evil was yet a mystery. Unfortunately, it's not a mystery to us. We know it very well. Thank you, Adam. And by the way, when I say that, please know that if you were the first man and woman, you would have done the same thing, all right? And so the knowledge of good and evil to Adam was yet a mystery. And the nature of it would remain concealed until God so determined to reveal it, which I believe was his plan. But he would do it in his time. You can't just grasp For the things of God, they have to be bestowed, you see. But there was a flaw, friends. We spoke of it. The Holy Spirit comes in to fill in for our weaknesses. How does he say it? The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. It's not the sin nature we're talking about. It's the weakness of our natural beings. It's a weakness, and Adam had that weakness in him. Every desirable thing was within his reach. The knowledge of good and evil was still a mystery, and God made a restriction. That knowledge of evil would not be known, not yet, but the flaw, the weakness in the creature changed things. The devil made suggestions. The flaw was that Adam was subject to suggestions. This is why we have all these ministries and do all these teachings. We're so subject to suggestion. Someone says something and we say, that sounded pretty smart. And Christians can do that. What do you think? All through the New Testament, how many times? Go through and count. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Do not be deceived. He's talking to saved people. We can be deceived. And those of us who are deceived are easily deceived of those of us who know less of God's will, less of God's word. God's word is just his will published. So there was this flaw, this weakness, this this unmet need, this felt need, which we all know so much about. And the flaw was that Adam was subject to suggestion. Friends, God makes commands. He doesn't have a suggestion box, I think you may have noticed. He makes commands. The devil makes suggestions. God says of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat. But the devil says... Has God indeed said, thou shalt not eat? And he put the doubt in the mind of the woman. Did God really say that? Let's think about this. And yet with every good thing within reach, things still went terribly wrong in the garden. If you haven't read that recently, it's it's only a couple of paragraphs, really. Having all your immediate felt needs met is overrated. Have you ever thought about that? Having all your needs met is overrated. You're still going to sin. You're still going to desire something else. And who, and who knows what the mind of man will conceive to grasp that thing that we desire, even though all our needs are fulfilled. The crowning achievement of God's creative powers, man, fell into sin and degradation. The creatures God made in his own image struck out against him. The paradise they were born to rule was suddenly closed to them. Its entrance was guarded by mighty cherubim with flaming swords. And I'm quite certain that Adam and Eve had never seen a sword before, perhaps not a cherubim, and certainly not a flaming sword to keep them out of their former home. They rebelled against the explicit command of Almighty God. They took of what was forbidden, oh, that infernal Entitlement mentality of our race. We just think we're entitled to stuff. You know, if we would get over that, what a free country we would be. If we knew that we're not entitled and we're not deserving. Oh, if our country would hear that. All I hear all day in the media is how deserving everybody is. And we have different groups that are more deserving over time. At this time, it's this minority and it used to be that minority. and Now this minority we're going to think about. And... uh, Some of them are a minority that are this big. There's like three people, and we have to change the whole Constitution for them. (laughs) But I digress. The story of Eden is well-known and well-chronicled. Paradise Lost is the great epic poem of the Puritan John Milton about that very thing. But the two found out that the fatherly presence of their maker, the one who searched them out in the cool of the day for fellowship, The one who promised them life, gifted them with health, supplied them with abundant provision, was no mere grandfatherly type. He wasn't a grandfather with a long beard bouncing them on his knee. He was a maker giving them commands. He was the great deity and master of all creation. And his purposes in creation would not be thwarted, not by their ignorance, not by their impudence, not by their childish reaching for that which their father forbade them to have. No hand in the cookie jar is going to thwart God's will. And so God prophesied for the first time that even then, even after the sin even after the rebellion of his beloved, that all things would yet work together for good for those who love him. Even then he prophesied it. It was already written. And so the Lord said to the serpent, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And he spoke of the Lord Jesus. That's the first messianic promise of Scripture. God's will would be done. Sin or no sin. And yet even in the brash grasping for more, the Lord and maker of the universe had a plan. God had a plan. This didn't wreck the plan. If you can stand it this morning, I want to tell you, it was part of the plan. It was already woven in. There's a name for that belief. It's called supralapsarianism. If you think I'm going to talk about it, you're wrong. But if you don't believe it, you're wrong also. There was still a way for all things, even this, to work together for good. Of the man, he said, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Friends, the gospel and the purpose of God was right there. The sin couldn't stop it. Your sin will not stop it. The great plan could not possibly be foiled by the likes of a foolish man or a clever serpent. You think God was really in heaven going, darn that serpent. I knew he should have kept him out of the garden. Take him by surprise. Why didn't I think of that? I just can't see that view of God. The plan was already written from beginning to end, the tapestry was woven, as I like to say. The master craftsman did not need to go back to the drawing board. The Lord of the universe was not seen scratching his divine head, nor was he seen fretting and pacing throughout the clouds. There were no emergency meetings called with the host of heaven. The heavenly SWAT teams were not notified. There was no plan B to resort to. The tapestry was woven and even the scarlet thread of sin and rebellion would be fearfully and wonderfully embroidered into the fabric of time and glory and the purpose of God. It didn't thwart it. The tapestry needed a little red over here apparently. Someone might ask why. Because it was foreordained by him who knows the end from the beginning. Friends, when you know the end from the beginning, do we know what that means? I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He who was and is and is to come. If he has all those things, how do you think he was surprised by Adam's sin? How do you think he was surprised by yours? Do you think he's surprised that Joe Biden's in office? Figured I'd throw that out there. I'm the Lord thy God, he says, I'll have no strange gods before me. That's why. You would have to be another God to thwart the plan of God. And to those who falter, and to those who doubt, and to those who could not see the solitary tree of life through the abundant leaves of sin, will finally and internally be blessed. And nothing can stop the path of glory, friends. It was ordained, in your sin and mine is all part of the glory. Don't glory in the sin, but the sin will be part of the glory. Another man might ask, how? A man might ask, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That would be the answer to the how. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That means the end is already worked out. Why again, another person might venture to ask, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Romans 9, 11. They broke the law of God, another will contend. How will they find entrance? Because I will call them my people who were not my people. And her beloved who was not beloved. That's how. No mystery there. How do we know that all things work together for good? Because the Lord our God was so determined that he would inspire his chosen apostle to write of it as though it was already done. That wonderful... Beautiful aorist tense of Greek literature. Not every language has an aorist tense. An aorist tense is a past tense on steroids. Lloyd-Jones comments here. He says, I emphasize again the use of the aorist, indicating something already completed once and forever. That's what it means. We don't have a way of doing that in English the way they do it in Greek. So we have to point out, it's the aorist. God would speak of future glory so assuredly that he would have it written in the past tense. And so we read of the future as the finished work of God. Verses 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, past tense, he also predestined, past tense, to be conformed, past tense, to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, past tense, These he also called, past tense, whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, these he glorified. It's all done. Let's go home and wait for the glory. or we can wait here. we got a wonderful building, and it's got backup generator power. We're all set. Lloyd-Jones takes it further. He writes this. There are foolish people who say you can be justified and then lose the status. Don't be one of those foolish people. If you've been justified, he goes on, you've been glorified. And your glorification has already happened in the purpose of God. These are all past tenses to give us absolute proof of the certainty, he writes. In certain ways, the most daring statement in the whole of Scripture is the statement that we're already glorified. Paul dared to speak of a future thing as though it's a done deal. We are as glorified as we are justified, Lloyd-Jones says. That's the apostle's argument, because it is the purpose of God. It must be carried out. Can you deal with that this morning? Does that mess up your thinking of history in a lineal way? It is lineal, but it's already written. So I must admit that the statement compels the reader to think philosophically, and I find most people aren't good at that think thinking philosophically on the matter and not to simply think in a finite linear manner it's pretty tough to think about this with the mind of man you have to sort of transcend into the eternal realms of thought to consider that what's going to happen to you tomorrow is already done that what's going to happen to you in your future That what's going to happen to you in your eternity is already written. And it wasn't written last year. And it wasn't written in the time of David or in the time of Moses. And it wasn't written in the time of Adam. And it wasn't written when God said, let there be light. It was written before the foundation of the world. God didn't wait for your father to meet your mother to make you. You were already made. And those of you who don't like election... Um, I'm sure you're not insulted that God decided when you'd be born, and he didn't ask for your opinion. Why would you think that you need his opinion to be born again? It's birth. That's in God's hands. But since we don't think philosophically too well, let me give an illustration on the matter that might make the pattern of glorification a little simpler. Now, as you know, I've been a builder all my life. I'm the builder of record for this building. You like it? It's nice. Remember when we didn't have it? (laughs) Remember when we were in the fishbowl over at Ted Williams and things were going on outside and the whole room was glass and we were in there, you know, with our Bibles and someone's preaching and people are walking by. And I mean, man, I guess we were making a statement. I called it a dumpy room with a view. It was an awesome view of the pond, and we used to go down and baptize in that pond until Rachel said, no, I want to be in the Listy's pool, and we changed the whole thing. <laughs> Rachel wasn't having the pond. Um, as you know, I've been a builder all my life. I'm the builder on record for the building, but so many of you were here for every aspect of it. See this white ceiling here? Ricky painted that, and he wanted me to get him a big scissor lift with a motor and everything so he could, you know, around the building and paint <laughs> But instead, I just got him a static baker stage, and, uh, and Seth, who was 10 years younger then, and, and Susan had to push the thing around. <laughs> While Rick's up there painting. And I said, don't you need a tarp? And Susan said, no, Rick doesn't spill. And then we scraped up the floor, and here we are. <laughs> no, but I have to tell you, we had an architect design and put it on paper before it was complete, all right? And there were years of doubt and frustration, there were government requirements for sewer and water, for size, for capacity, for purpose, for parking, for upland, for wetland, and every one of those words cost about $10,000. There were what seemed to us to be unwarranted rules and restrictions, not to mention costly rules and restrictions. But we took that matter step by step and used our resources as they became available. We put our own effort into every aspect of, of the building knowing that somehow, even though we didn't have the money, even though there were so many obstacles to our getting the money. You ever notice when you go to borrow from banks, they want to make sure you don't need the money? Even though I felt foolish from time to time, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and go, I'm the guy who built the tower and didn't have enough to finish. And she'd say, no, you're not, honey. You'll be fine. Go back to sleep. (laughs) Why did you wake me? But I felt like that a lot. I'd come in here. We built this thing, this structure in 2005 and didn't come back into it to work again till, well, in 2007, we put the windows in. See, I can talk about this all day if you want and put the doors in. And then in 2012, we came back. It was still a dirt floor in here. Bob, you were here the first day we, f- we framed. I remember you and, uh, and Caleb walking up with your tool belts on and your baseball hats. That's the first part of being a builder. You get the baseball hat, you get the, you get the, the skill saw, and hopefully a, a pickup truck, and you're all set. That's all you need. Um, so there we were, um, hoping the building would get down. We had the print, though. We had the plan. Now, I can't tell you that that plan was the building because I'm not God, but God can do that. God has the blueprint, and the blueprint is the final building. It is for him. Unlike God, I couldn't tell you the finished plan was the finished building, but I could tell you that if and when the building was finished, it would look like the plan. The concept of it was already conceived. Its end would be established as planned. Its final form was already established. But unlike me, God is under no such restriction. He's able to tell us that the plan is the final outcome. The plan and the building are one and the same thing to him who holds all things in his hand and who knows the end from the beginning. We used a local architectural company. The Lord used the Alpha and Omega architectural group. If I start an architectural firm, I will name it that. So that all the Christians will come to me. You know, like we all buy pillows from the, from the Christian guy? Just kidding. Friends, consider your life. It's already drawn out in the blueprint. Your life's like the building. It's already drawn out. The end from the beginning's already established. And when you come to the end of it, and you step over the line from this world into the presence of God... You'll see that from beginning to end, every event of your life was expertly woven into what God preordained in your behalf as the wise master planner of all things. And if you like, you may be so bold as the voice from verse 31, which seems to challenge the boldness of Paul, what shall we say then to these things? What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the answer is obvious. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Let me give you another illustration, one that I heard in years past. There was a man who owned a catamaran. Anyone know what a catamaran is? It's one of those boats. It's like sort of made up of two canoes, and there's like a tarp or a uh, you know a, a canvas in between the two, and there's a big sail, and the things are made to go so fast. And he was taking his friend out. But he said to his friend, you know, this is going to go so fast and one of these pontoons is going to go up so high you're going to fear for your life because you're going to be going about 60 knots and you're going to have your head in the water and the waves are going to be drenching your hair and you're going to be screaming for your life. He said, but don't worry. It can't go over. If you know that, you'll have a good ride. If you don't, you'll be terrified. Now, I'm going to tell you, the ride is finished. It is not going over. All right? If you know that ahead of time, take joy in the ride. If not, you're going to be terrified. So, the man, as the story goes, was terrified. It just is something you're not used to. It's like the roller coaster. Everybody screams. It was like that. But when he came back to the dock, he said, You know what? You were right. Can we do it again? This time I'm going to just enjoy it. The only thing is we can't do that with God. You only get one try. Enjoy the ride. Be joyful in all things, he says. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The catamaran can't go over. So the question, who shall be against us? The answer is no one. Nothing in this world... Or in heaven, neither in this life nor in the life to come, could have altered the plan as it was drawn out by God. And so the apostle can say with the Savior, it is finished. And so it is. The end of a thing comes with the same glory as the beginning of a thing. God is the architect and the builder. He's the supply house and the supply chain. He's the banker and the creditor, the craft and the craftsman. For where can I go from your spirit, the prophet king sang. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, "'Even there your hand shall lead me "'and your right hand shall hold me. "'If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, "'even the night shall be light about me. "'Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, "'but the night shines as the day. "'The darkness and the light are both alike to you, "'for you formed my inward parts. "'You covered covered me in my mother's womb.' I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes looked upon my yet unformed substance. I love that phrase. I put it in brackets because I tinkered with it a little. I went. I slipped from the new King James to the old King James, just for that. Your eyes looked upon my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written. The days were fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. That says it all. And Paul said that all in one verse. David was a little more verbose, a little more poetic than Paul, and gave it to us with beauty. The psalm is David's poetic way of saying, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. The Lord Jesus preached this to the the disciples after a long and arduous search for him. Maybe you remember they looked for him on one side of the sea. By the way, the sea is a a great lake. The Sea of Galilee is a lake. Everyone knows that, right? Um the fish they fish for by the way is tilapia it's a freshwater fish so they fished and they went to the wrong side and then they came to the other side and Jesus was there and they searched all over and they went across the sea to find him and he said to them all the t- dead people well dead people tell no tales you've heard that but dead t- people make no decisions either you were dead he made you alive You are dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience who are gathering on the green in Boston in April but among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Friends, you were dead. He made you alive. That's his great destination, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. But God, who was rich in mercy, Paul writes to the Ephesians, because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Friends, we're not there yet. We're not in the heavenly places in Christ, or are we? (laughs) Again, this past tense that he loves so much. He made you sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Friends, if it was your choice, you could boast about it and a lot of people do. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, in Jesus' name, give us a great revelation of your will. From these verses, from these beloved texts, from this beloved Apostle's pen, Father, in Jesus' name, give us great clarity in understanding these truths of your word. And may the whole counsel of God be preached from the pulpits of your servants, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.